But we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, and he's going to talk about how faith yields. I want to start off by just talking about a time in my life where I felt like God was really helping me understand about yielding to him in a specific area. Now, throughout our lives, we have all kinds of areas that God is constantly trying to teach us and train us, but this was an area that God was working on in my life. Now, it was actually an exciting time of our life because we were planting a brand new church called Maranatha Bible Church back in 1995. But what you need to know is that we had just come through a pretty difficult time. We had gone through a church split. Now, some of you probably have experienced things like that, but as a staff member, it was extremely difficult because you saw kind of the ugliness of humanity during that time. And there were things that happened in the church, people saying things, judgments that were coming out, and, and, and he, it was enough to make anybody question, do I really want to be a part of this thing called the church? But God, in his way, always has this ability to take what we royally mess up and take it and do something beautiful in it. And so God, out of the ashes and the rubble of this church split, God did something beautiful in establishing a brand new church called Maranatha Bible Church. Now, I was a youth pastor at that time, and so it was, I was constantly building relationships with kids, constantly working in the midst of that, and so there was a lot of work. Now, if there's anything you should know about me, or one thing that you may observe about me is that I love to work. In fact, if anything, it's kind of a fault of mine. Uh, I would like to think I'm the last of the boomer generation, that I got a little bit of the builder generation put in me. That might be the romantic way of looking at it. But really, a thing I, I basically struggle with or have struggled with in my life is drawing my identity from my work and thinking, the more I do, the more God is pleased. It's the, the, the balance between being and doing and feeling, if I just do, if I just do, if I just do, God will be pleased. And I know that's wrong. It's a wrong mentality. But when I was 30 years of age, I got to tell you, that was something I really struggled with. I feel like I've gotten better with that over the years. But at this time in my life, I was probably spending 65 to 70 hours a week in ministry, building into the lives of individuals, and all the while just justifying these things because of the good things that were happening. After all, God tells us to make disciples, right? He tells us to teach, to raise up leaders. All of these things we were doing in the start of this new ministry, there was so much work to be done. Well, one day, something very strange happened to me. I received a letter in the mail at my office, and it was from my wife. Now, can I just tell you that if you ever get a letter in the mail at your office from your spouse, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. Now, I don't actually have that letter, but there's words in it that are forever etched into my mind. So I've written down some of the thoughts that I felt embraced this letter. This is what I remember. Dear Steve, I would like to make an appointment with you to discuss our relationship. 
Since I never see you, I thought this would be the best way to get you on my on, get me on your schedule. You see, I am struggling right now because I feel my husband has a mistress and her name is the church. Lately, I feel that she has had more importance than the kids and me. I love my husband and feel he is doing a noble thing, but he is neglecting his first mission field, his family. So if you could find the time, I would really like to sit down and talk about this situation. Sincerely, Lee. Now, let me just tell you, I picked up my phone immediately. I called my wife. I said, let's go to lunch. And so that's where we sat down and had a very nice, one of those heart-to-heart -heart talks. And she had my attention. And it was important for me to yield, to yield to what she was saying to me and to make some life adjustments. Now, I wish I could say that I made those adjustments flawlessly and that from that day forward, I never had a problem at all. But it was one of those things where, you know, when you, you, you've been confronted, like you're really good at it for the first month and, and maybe the second month or the third month. And then gradually, as you get, uh, get away from that confrontation, you start taking on some of those bad habits again. Well, that certainly was the case with me. About six years later, my son, Joshua, who was about 11 at that time, said, Dad, there are a hundred things I hate about your job, and there's one thing that I love. Well, as was true with my wife, I thought, okay, Joshua, I want you to write down those things, and we're going to go to lunch. I don't know what it is with pastors and lunch, but I like doing that. So we went to Wendy's, and I had him write them out, all of them that he could think of. And Joshua sat down with me as an 11-year-old boy, and in his own way, this is what I remember him saying. He said, Dad, I hate that you always bring your, home, your work home with you. I hate how you are always available 24-7 for people. I hate how you say you will be home at a certain time and you're always late. He's using these always and never words that you're not supposed to use. Unfortunately, I think they were true. I hate how you always include ministry stops when we do things as a family. I hate how we can't go anywhere without you knowing someone and needing to talk to them. I hate, and he continued on with about 10 items. And as I sit, sat and listened to my son, the Holy Spirit began to do surgery on my heart. And he used my son and his words to help bring me to a place of yielding. Even now at this moment, as I was penning these words this week, I got very emotional because I thought of the regrets, I, I thought of these things, and it tells me that I have some regrets on the way that I've operated. Now, now my kids are out of my house. I don't have a do-over button. I don't have a repeat or a mulligan. I had my children, and I'm not saying that I messed it up completely, but there are some areas that I have some regrets as I look back. And when I think of the word I hate, it was a dagger to me at that point, but it was something that God had to use to do surgery on my own heart 
to correct me in regards to my own stubbornness. That day was a big turning point for me. And I, uh, we made some course corrections. From that point on, my wife uh, was the one who was uh, to screen all the family calls. That was before cell phones, so we used the family phone. It's, it seems like that was so long ago. I left my briefcase at work because that was a symbol of, of, of me bringing home work. I made family time our family time. I got involved in coaching my boys in soccer, even though I knew nothing about soccer, didn't even have a passion for soccer, could care less about soccer, but they love soccer, so I learned to love soccer. I tried to keep our date nights a priority where I focused in on my family. Now, some of you might be asking, well, what was the one thing that Joshua actually loved? Well, as a youth pastor, he loved going on, and all my kids did, ski trips and whitewater rafting because I took them with me. That was about the one thing he loved, but everything else he hated. So what's the point? Why do I tell you a story like this in my own life? Why do I show the vulnerability of my own life? Well, here's the deal. God wants us to yield to his will, every one of us, and I'm included in that. He wants us to yield to his priorities in life. And God doesn't want my family to get out of, out of alignment in those priorities. He doesn't want my family to be number three, four, five, or six on my priority list. My priorities are firm. God first. My wife and kids are second. My job and then my church and, there, and then the values or the, then the priorities from there. I now realize that my value as a man is not determined by how much work that I do as an individual. Yes, God does allow good, hard work, but my value is never attained by that. My value always comes by what Christ says of me. And that is what God wants. He wants each of us as believers in Christ to measure our life by his will and ask him what he wants. Today, as we go to James chapter 4, James is going to address the church in yielding to two areas. He wants us to not judge one another. That's one area. And the other area is that we keep priorities in our life, especially in the area of our work. I hope your heart is open because this is so practical to you and I. Let's ask that God would use this service for his glory. God, I pray that as we look at your word, I pray that you would help us to have your heart and your desire. Help us to be faithful to you in, in running our life through your grid, through what you think. Help us to make decisions as mom and moms and dads in regards to our families. Help us as those that have our kids uh, out of the home to be able to be encouragers and role models to them. I pray, Father, that you would do beautiful things through our families and through our life and how we interact with each other. Help us, Lord, to not have a judgmental spirit and help us to yield everything through the will of God. And I help us to have our priorities where they need to be. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start in verse 11 and 12. 
And there's really two things we're going to look at. The first thing is yielding to God's judgment as opposed to us being the judge. He says, do not speak evil against one another. James chapter 4, verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver law and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, he gives these two verses in context where he had just talked about confrontation within the church. And he had given the solution that we are to submit to one another, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. And that at the end of that passage, the very last thing he says is, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Obviously, James's transition from this confrontation in the church to another area that the church was getting off track in regards to judging one another. And he's going to talk about priorities as well. And so as you think about it, our whole series is about faith doing. That's what James wants us to do. But he realizes that temptation gets in the way of the will of God. He realizes that when we, when we, uh, when we show favoritism, that gets in the way, way of what God wants us to do in life. And he's given us all kinds of things. And now he's building up to this idea of judging one another can also get in the way. And not having God's priorities can also get in the way. So in verses 11 and 12, James makes it clear that we as believers, we, even though we are redeemed individuals, God has changed us from the inside out, we still have this ability to tap into our flesh and to rush into judgment over other people. Now think about that for your own life. Do you feel like you ever rush into judgment? Make judgments based on appearances. This is what he is addressing here. To speak evil is a form of slander, and it's incongruent with the humble spirit that he had just got done talking about. And to do so actually puts us as a judge of God's law itself. When I read this this week, I thought, no, really? We become a judge of God's law? How is it that we become a judge of God's law? Well, it works like this. Think about it in practicality. We hear just fragments of information in a conversation. And in our minds, we have this ability to connect dots in such a way that all of a sudden, what we've heard, we've come to some conclusions about individuals or about what we heard, even though it might be secondhand information. We have that ability to connect all the dots. We do this in the workplace. We do this in politics. We do this in the family. And yes, we do this, unfortunately, in the church. Now, according to James, what he is saying here is that when we do this, we stand in judgment over that individual and we supersede God's word because we become the judge of that individual instead of allowing God's word to be the judge of that individual. And so we become the jury and the judge. Why do we do this? We love control. We love to have control. We love 
to have superiority. We're addicted to this. And this is an issue of misplaced authority. We think we are something that we are really not. And James makes it very clear here. When we do this, he says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and destroy. He puts life into perspective. My friends, when we butt into business that is not our own and we draw conclusions of individuals, it's wrong. We do this with churches as well. We'll hear things of churches and we draw conclusions. Has, have you ever heard someone say, well, I hear that church down the road. They're, 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 not, they're not doing so well. I mean, they're having blah, 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 blah. Or, hey, man, that person, we got to pray for that individual because I hear their marriage is really, and we go on. And all of a sudden, what we do is we hit the, hit, hear these bits and pieces of information and we draw conclusions in our mind. Here's the problem. The church down the road might be having problems. That marriage might be having problems. But guess what? God's the one that's working in that church and in the individual. He uses his word to correct those churches and to correct the individuals. And they may come to a course correction in their life. But guess what we are doing? We're still going around with this idea of, of the problems of that church or the problems of that couple because we have come to conclusions in our mind so James basically asked the question, who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, as I hear that question, it's about as cutting as my son saying, I hate, I hate. Because I look at that and I'm just being honest. I know I've gotten caught up at times in listening to things I shouldn't listen to. Gossip, it just sucks you in. And we've all done it at times. And what God wants is he says, don't do that. Go away from that. Go away from slander. Go away from gossip. Go away from hearsay and stop making judgments. So here's a question. Is there ever a time that we should make judgments? Is there ever a time that we are to do that? When is it judgment and when is it, let's say, counsel? Because we're told in the Word of God that we are to give counsel. We're told this in Proverbs eleven fourteen. It says this, When there's, there's no guidance, a people fall, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. We're also told in Ephesians four fifteen that we are to speak the truth in love to individuals. We're told in Colossians chapter 4 that we are to proclaim Christ admonishing, that's not easy, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present people uh, perfect in Christ. We're told in Colossians 2 that leaders should encourage and rebuke with authority. So clearly, counsel that might take the form of correction is not being judgmental. And yet our passage today and Jesus' own words, Jesus says, don't judge. Don't judge one another. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? He said this, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So how do we distinguish between judgment and just being a good counselor to somebody? I want to give you a chart. You know, Josh, you motivated me a couple weeks ago with your chart. So I want to give you a chart between judgment and counsel. Here's the contrast between the two from the scriptural standpoint. Judgment is always going to be based on partial information. Judgment that is ungodly judgment is based on partial information. It might be gathering information through appearance or it's secondhand information. Jesus said in John 7, 24, he said, stop judging by the basis of appearance. If we just stop judging on a basis of appearance, we would probably do a lot. We would cut out a lot of problems in our life. He says, stop judging on the basis of appearance. Make right judgments. The second thing we know about judgment is judgment is often communicated to others rather than the person involved. Proverbs calls this gossip and slander. Proverbs says this, he who goes about as a slander reveals what? Reveals secrets about that individual. Therefore, do not be associated with a gossip. Now, here's the thing. To the one being judged, judgment feels like someone is standing over them in superiority. If they come to understand that somebody has judged them, it, it feels like someone is coming and judging them and standing over them in superiority. James is addressing this in this passage. The recipients of judgments feel like they are under trial by their jury of their peers and they have been gagged and don't have an ability to defend themselves because they weren't asked. Now to the one who is doing the judging, judgment feels like righteous conviction. It feels like I am just being a servant of God, just pointing out these things that are wrong in your life. Now if this weren't the case, then nobody would do this. When we put it under a spiritual microscope, judgment that feels like righteous conviction is really a way for us to feel good about ourselves. Now here's what judgment produces. It produces the same things that Josh talked about a couple weeks ago. Everything that worldly wisdom produces, this is what judgment produces. It produces disorder and evil things. Judgment leaves a trail of pain and damage. Now let's look at uh, counsel. Counsel is polar opposite. Counsel is going to be based on complete information that's given by permission by the individual. There's a situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul addresses where there was two people in the church that weren't getting along with one another. And Paul says, don't take it to court. What I want you guys to do is take it to the leaders of the church. It says, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Instead of one believer taking the other believer to court, they were to entrust the information to trustworthy individuals who would make counsel and be able to bring a judgment on that situation so that there could be peace in that family. Uh, counsel is based on complete information that's given by permission. 
Counsel is also communicated directly to the individual, to the person. It's not done by email. It's not done by texting. It's not done through social media. It's me going to you because my problem is with you. And we've heard, uh, we, we have a disagreement or there's something I see in your life. So I am going to go directly to you. And because I have relationship to you, you're going to know, even though it may be hurtful that of what I'm going to say, it's going to be truthful. And it's going to come as Ephesians 4 says, I'm going to speak the truth in love to you as an individual. Here's the thing. To the one being counsel, good counsel feels encouraging and helpful, though it might be tough to accept. Have you ever had a brother or sister in the Lord come to you in love and say, I, got, I see something in you. And it's really hard for me to say this, but I see this attitude or I see this in your life. And at first our pride flares up and it's like, no, 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 that's not me. But when we think about it and reflect on it, it's like, yeah, yeah. the Spirit of God starts to work. Proverbs says this. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of the enemy. You know what that means? It means that a friend is willing to wound you with his words because he loves you. But an enemy is always going to tell you what you want to hear. A friend is willing to do that. So to the one being counseled, good counsel feels encouraging and helpful, though it may be tough to accept. Now to the one who's doing the counseling, good counsel is humbling for that individual, and they pray that God would allow them to speak what is good and give good and right counsel. It's humbling to give, uh, to give counseling, to give counsel to individuals. Remember what James said to individuals that teach and instruct. He says, we put the bit into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us. And as a result, a counselor who is, in a sense, on a very basic level, is teaching an individual is going to be judged more strictly. This should cause us all to pause before we give counsel to individuals. Now, here's the fruit of counsel. The fruit of counsel is the same thing as the fruit of heavenly wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 18. It will produce a fruit of righteousness that is sown in peace. Now, the goal of counseling is always to see righteousness in an individual's life. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to listen to our counsel. That doesn't mean that they're going to do that. I sit across from couples that are getting married and they make a, a promise that they are going to maintain a level of purity. They're going to be pure before marriage. And there are sometimes they're just looking at me and they're just lying straight to my face. And later on, when the, after the divorces happen, because they built a foundation that was built on lies and, and all kinds of things, it comes out that, no, no, I, I just, none of that was true. There's times that our kids are not going to listen to our counsel. Probably most of the time they're not going to listen to other counsel when they're really young. As they get older, they actually find out you as parents actually know something, which is kind of cool. But what we do not need to be discouraged with is how it's received. It's just the fact that we give the counsel and we trust that God will produce something in that. And hopefully it produces right living. So this is what James is talking about, that we're not to have the judgment over others, but we are to have, we are to allow God to judge. 
But then he goes on to one other area and he says, we're to yield to God's will. Look at verse 13 through 17. He says, we are to yield to God's will in the priorities we set in life. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Now let's understand, first of all, as James is addressing us here, as he's addressing the church, he is not speaking against hard work. He's not speaking about against being an entrepreneur. He's not speaking against wise planning. He's not speaking against that at all. What he is addressing is when we live as believers, as practical atheists. When we as believers live as practical atheists. What's a practical atheist? A practical atheist that says, I got God as a corner of my life on Sunday. I'll go and worship. I'll go and pray. But during the week, I'm going to make all the shots. I'm going to call all the shots. I'm going to call, make all my plans according to what I feel I need to do to get ahead in life. God wants us to run every aspect of our life through him. And so what James does is he starts off with a business plan. He says, here's what happens in life. Step one, we make a strategic plan. We go to this or that city. That was, in modern day terms, it would be like, we're going for the open market share. We're trying to find the best place where we can do business. In the book called Blue Ocean Strategies, the whole philosophy behind this book is that we need to swim out of, people that are in business need to swim out of the red, mark, uh, red bloodied waters of, of a very crowded market share and go to new innovative ideas. And so that's what James is saying and is we got to make a plan. We go to this or that city. And then step two, he says, you got to pay the cost. You got to spend a year there. Today, this would be the individual that says to his kids, listen, daddy's gone because I got to make some money. You like those vacations. You like our nice house. It's going to cost. It's going to cost some time. And it's this individual that knows that in order to advance the business, it's going to cost time. Number three, we compete. He says we carry on business. Every generation has its way of doing business. And at the most basic level, it's the same then as it is now. We network with individuals. We meet with individuals uh, and convince them that we have something that they need that we can help them out with, and it's better than the competitor. And so that's what we're doing to compete. And then finally, we aim to win, make a profit. That's what James is saying. The goal in any business is to win at what we do, which will have a fruitful profit associated with it. So that's all James is saying. We go to this or that city, we spend a year there, we engage in business, we make a profit. Now, two observations here. Number one, this list is not bound to business. It could be applied in sports, it could be applied in education, it could be applied in the church, in any area, in any area, of, any area of our life. Let's say, for example, that all of a sudden I have this obsession to be the best news, nose flute uh, soloist in the world. 
and I practice my nose flute, and I want to be the best nose flute guy in the world. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make a plan to be the best nose flute player in the world. I'm going to pay the cost. I am going to be spending a lot of time practicing my nose flute. And then I'm going to find ways to compete. I'm going to find nose flute, flute conventions where I competitions, where we, I can have my nose flute recital. And, and my goal is to win. Now, that's ridiculous, but we can apply any area of our life to this strategy that he's talking about. Here's the other observation. This list in and of itself is not wrong. It's not evil. It's not ungodly. It's not wrong to do business. It's not wrong to have a plan, to pay the cost, to compete, and to win. It's not wrong. What attaches a moral value is what James says next. When he says, yet you do not know what your life is like tomorrow or what it'll bring, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Four observations of truths that come from this. And if these four truths are not in your life, then the plan that that business model that we just talked about, it can become evil. It can become arrogant. It can be completely outside of what God wants. But if we apply the truth that James is saying here, these four truths, then they will come in alignment with what God's will is. And what's number one? Truth number one is that we understand that life is uncertain and short. See, we look at today and we realize God's given me today. I'm not going to waste it as a dad. I'm not going to waste it in the business place. I am going to work hard for God today because God has given me this day. Life is short. It is a vapor. It will disappear. And before I know it, it will be gone. We have no regrets. Number two, I am accountable to God. Even though life is short, I know that I'm accountable to God. That's why he says, if the Lord wills. I operate everything in my life saying, whatever you want, God. And I realize that God is giving certain things to me as an individual that I'm accountable to God for. I'm accountable for the talents he's given me. Some of you might listen to a radio station by a guy named Rush Limbaugh. I like listening to him once in a while. I listen to all kinds of sports talk and things like that. But when I listen to him, he often says, well, I have talents on loan by God. Well, I have news for you. We all have ta talents on loan by God that we are accountable for. We have time that God has given us. We have treasures that he wants us to invest for his kingdom. And he wants us to keep in mind that we are to steward our time, our talent, and our treasures before God. Time is short. I am accountable to God. And finally, God determines my priorities. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It is possible for us to violate God's truth because of our ambitions. I shared of how I did that in my own life earlier on in ministry. Today, I think it's very difficult to raise our kids in this world. And it's hard to keep and maintain priorities. 
For many of you, church is a very high priority, for example. We know that God has to be first in your life. Wife and kids or the family has to be second. You have to work. And then you got church. But for our society is saying, let's push church way down the line. For example, in the area of sports. We have sports all the time now. It used to be that Sundays were a sacred day. And because Sunday was a sacred day, you would never think of having a, a practice or anything like that on Sunday. But now if a coach says, hey, parents, we need your kids there at the practice field at 10 o'clock every Sunday for the next uh, 15 weeks during our, our during, during, we think, well, I can't let my kids miss out. We have, if they said there's going to be a game every Sunday at 11, we we feel like our kids are going to be missing out if we don't do that, if we don't oblige. And yet we don't ask the question, what is God commanding me to do? What's my priority in light of what God does? It affects us in the workplace. Some of us work 40 to 50 hours during the week and the boss says constantly, I need you on the weekends. I need you on Sunday. I need you to work again and again and again. And we never ask ultimately what my ultimate boss says. What does God think of this? See, life is short. We are accountable to God and that we are to determine our priorities in life. And all I can say is that when we get this all jumbled out, Things become a mess really, really quick in our life. James is so wise in what he is telling us. And finally, his last truth is this. To make plans apart from God is arrogant and evil. He says that as a reality check. He wants us to know that as believers, we can never live as practical atheists. God has to be integrated in every aspect of our life. So how do we do this? How do we bring this lesson to us at Mission View? Well, verse 17 basically says, therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it is sin. This implies that there is an evaluation that we go through in our life. The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it. And what God calls us to do as men and women in the church is to evaluate how are we in judging others? How are we in setting the priorities in our life? Here's four questions on the basis of the last four truths to think about. Number one, am I living each day for God? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So am I living each day for God? Number two, am I using my talents, my time, and my treasure for God? Am I using it just for my own personal advancement, or am I using it for the advancement of God's kingdom? Number three, have I set proper priorities and boundaries in my life? This is so huge. It's so huge because we get out of whack so easy. And finally, am I currently being arrogant and thus evil before God? Does God frown at my life right now because I am not resting in Him? My being is in Him, and my doing should come out of my being, being that I rest in Him. I want us to think about that as we sing the song, I Surrender. This is a time to reflect on it, 
But really, the altar call is for us to go away and to evaluate where we are in terms of judgment, in terms of our priorities in life, and make sure that we're bringing everything into alignment the way that we should. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would be with us as a church, that you would help us to be a people that surrender completely to you all the time. Forgive us for times that we just do not yield to you and that we do not acknowledge you in our life. Forgive us for compartmentalizing our life at times where we go to church on Sunday and we have a part of God, but then throughout the week we never open the word. We don't really consult you. We don't seek your face. Lord, help us to be a people that seek your face with all of our hearts. Help us to understand who we are in Christ. And Lord, we know that you're not just asking us to do a bunch of things. You're just asking us to rest in you, to evaluate our life in you, and almost eliminate things in our life that aren't what you want. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us through that evaluation process. Help us to have a heart that surrenders completely to you.